Richard, welcome to the show. You are now most recently become the Google Director of Outbound Product Management, and we're going to hear all about that in uh, just a minute. But I want to start with probably what's most important for everyone to hear about. One, I heard you fractured your fingers, so I want to hear the story. And then two, this will be a chance for you to review the accessibility software that's out there. How did you manage with fractured (laughs) fingers to work in IT? So fire away. Yeah, very poorly. I, I figured out how to work uh, in IT. Yeah, I was chasing my son. I, you know, I start work early, like six thirty or so, seven, and uh, then when the kids wake up, I go up from my uh, my dungeon and say hi. And you know, inevitably, a kid wants to play, so I start chasing him up the stairs, slid, slammed my hand into the hand into the staircase. Kind of just worked with sausage fingers all day, figuring they'd be better. Then the next morning, wake up like this. This does not look good. So went to the ER. They uh, told me I had some fractures. They had to actually saw my wedding ring. Is more terrifying than almost anything I've experienced in like my a life. Real, like, a, like a live saw they had to cut it off with? I mean, well, they had like an electric thing that they're, that they're trying to do, and then that didn't work right, so they went to a manual. Oh. It's like 12 degrees in there, and I'm sweating buckets because I'm just waiting for them to take a finger with it. Oh so it took gosh. like 15 minutes. Uh, it really traumatized me. But then, you know, in a splint for a week, just single-hand typing to do my work, which was absolutely atrocious, and my boss can type a mile a minute on chat. And so I'm responding like I'm like having a, like a seizure. I can't even get anything out and she's typing so fast. So nonetheless, it was only a week in the splint. Most things are back to normal. And uh, my kids got me a lot more stuff for Father's Day, which seemed to even out. Okay, now I, do, I have a bunch of questions now. So yep. you're in the emergency room or the doctor's office and you're like, they yep. go for the soft. Were you like, wait a minute, let's try a few other things. Did you, were you like, hold on, I think I can get it off. Did you do the string thing? Like you put a string in it and you like wrap it around or were you just like, go <laughs> ahead, do what you need to do. No, they had a very nice nurse come in with a, with a can of lube, which always makes you nervous when that's like the walk-in <laughs> mode. But she tried to like, you know, grease up the finger, just nothing. So he was worried about circulation. I didn't want to wake up to a blue finger or something. So oh. I was like, I really want to take it off. Like, all right. So we should only have to cut one side and then just like, Split it. Sounds good. Cuts the one side. Doesn't bend. We'll have to do the other side too. Son of a. So then we get on the other side. He's sawing away, trying to have casual conversation while I'm watching this blade get closer and closer to my my flesh. Oh. So it's good. Oh, that's fantastic. So it's like, yeah. yeah well, well, how did your wife take it? Was she like, fine, doesn't matter. We'll get you another ring. Or was it like a tragic uh, loss of an heirloom? Like, were you sad? How, how did that go? Uh, I mean, it was bringing it home in the sort of urine sample cup they gave me. Probably the greatest vibe to walk in the door. Honey, here's my ring in two, and it's in a sample cup. <laughs> so right. we have to get that that fixed here fairly soon. But, you know, what else can you do? At least I still have a hand. I, I was worried about hook hand for a while there. Mm, okay. Well, what about the – did you that. try – did you venture in and try to do the voice-to-text at all? What, did it work? Because that's, that's – people are always talking that it's better. But, like, I don't know if I had to depend on it. Yeah. I'd be scared. No, that's right. Uh, there is a, it's funny, there's a Google page where you can try out like uh, speech to text. And it's like, I'll plug in some text or speak into it and we'll, we'll emit out your text. So I actually had that page bookmarked. And when I had to do like a longer email or, or text message or uh, whatever, I would just use that and then get a quick paragraph of text and paste it in. So I kind of did a little bit of a hacky way, but I figured I'd support the team and use a Google thing. All right, good. That's good. Well, I know Google, it seems like they're always the best at the voice to text. Like there's that, I think it's somewhat famous in tech circles, that video of like Surrey versus, uh, I guess what, (laughs) Hey Google, where they like, the guy talks into Mm -hmm. it simultaneously and the Google thinks like way ahead. It's just like so far ahead of Surrey. So I was like, yeah, well, it's good to know if you need to talk into a phone, 
use the Google yeah. Translate or whatever, whatever it is, Google dictation. Um, but then yeah. you have to speak correctly, which I think is maybe harder for me to speak correctly than it is to actually type in. So I don't know. That would be a whole other issue. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, listen, I wanted to have you, I know you recently uh, joined Google. We're going to get into that, but you know, I always like to start off with, um, you know, some simple stuff. Like, so how did you get into tech? Kind of like what drew you into it? Like what mm-hmm. was your first exposure to technology in your life? Yeah. You think being a short guy with big glasses that I was like the prototypical, like that guy uses computers. Uh, and that really wasn't the case. Till I got to college. I mean, I did the typical like, you know, programming classes, but my family wasn't going to afford a computer. So it was, you know, video game stuff. But I wasn't like a, a real techie guy to write an operating system before I was 11, like apparently everyone else at Google. But <laughs> I didn't kind of have that history. So once I got into college, because I was good at math, I thought, oh, electrical computer engineering seems cool. Got my absolute tail kicked. So I'm like, oh, computer engineering, that, that's got to be simpler. Also, didn't totally click, but then I ended up with a job in college at a research institute where the webmaster left after I was been like a copy editor for a year. I'm like, I'll do webmaster. I have no idea what that is. And so, you know, building FileMaker database applications and doing some VB script and ASP.NET stuff, stuff and, and just kind of, you know, I always like that stuff. I like problem solving. And so getting into tech more and more for me, that was a cool vehicle to kind of get some instant gratification on problem solving. So you know, I guess I did it late for a techie by doing it in college, but hopefully that gave me uh, maybe a little more appreciation for how much fun I had with it. Yeah, no, definitely. Because you're actually, looks like you're, was your major in political sciences or political science? Is that what you actually ended up getting your degree in? That's right. All right. Yeah. So I ended up, after three tries of other majors, I'm like, well, I want to get out of here in four years. Like, I don't want to be here forever. So political science, I mean, I'm, I like history. I figured I might even go to law school. So political science, almost a minor in econ. And so, yeah, it was a way to do that, but also have a tech job. And then, you know, job fair comes on campus, figured I'd go for that. And that led to Anderson Consulting or Accenture now. And what'd you do at Anderson or Accenture? Was this the the typical, like, they fly you out, you'd go to some client and, like, do some type of, I don't know, technology project for them for, like, some period of time? Was that the standard consulting gig? Yeah, you got it. So it was a bunch of people. I mean, it, it's a factory because I think they had, like, 20% turnover a year of consultants. So it was very much like, hey, we're going to boot camp you on tech, which was great because I didn't know a ton. So here's a camp boot camp on tech. Now we're going to charge you out at grossly irresponsible rates for yes. your skill set. Yes. And, like, let's let's go have it. So did that for about a year before I, I switched to something else. But it was fun because it was first real business travel. My first business trip ever, uh, my luggage got lost. And so I walk into the the session and everyone's in like suits and I'm in like a t-shirt and jeans and I get pulled aside by like the manager going, Richard, this isn't the dress code. Like, I know that I lost my luggage. And so I've been traumatized ever since. I almost always carry on for any business trip. Yeah. Well, that's a good lesson. It's good to learn it on your first trip. It was. Like never check it bags was. ever for any reason. No, so no. it's a rookie move. Move. Don't do it. Well, it's actually interesting. You have, you kind of like, I think I uh, always like when people identify the shortcuts in life to tech, it's like, well, <laughs> if you're not really interested in majoring in tech, you can really just, if you're smart enough to just get a, in, I don't, into smart enough, maybe I'll put that in quotations. Like if you can do well at uh, uh, any consulting interview, they'll pretty much just teach you everything you need to know, at least for your first year. And they will, and in exchange for doing that, as you already noted, they will charge absurd rates. Like you'll somehow see your own hourly rate that you're charged versus what you're paid. And that'll be a very sad moment for you. You'll feel really bad about it, but don't worry. They trained you and you're going to get good jobs later. So that's how you should feel good about it. I got six weeks of C plus plus training. So 300 bucks an hour, nailed it. Let's go. (laughs) So it was a, well, you know, it's funny what you mentioned that, because I mean, for me, I worked all four years of college and mostly so I had spending money and pay expenses. But also like once I got in and even now when I hire, 
Like I would much rather hire a student with a 3.2 who worked for four years and a 4.0 who never did. It's just me. I don't care your major. Like I, I like practical knowledge. I was told that was the same reason even I got into where I did was like, look, it's great to have book knowledge, but I like people who've actually, you know, even worked in an office or they've kind of understand communication, social skills, things you don't won't necessarily get just by being an awesome student. So for me, I think that helped because Accenture or Anderson had a, a kind of a ruthless interview process that they were notorious for. So I appreciated it more after. I didn't realize that before. But it's a very rigorous process. They look for certain things. I think more on that sort of social, because look, you're a consultant. You're going to go to random places with random people and you have to be effective. It really doesn't matter how smart you are at that point. You have to be adaptable. Absolutely. No, I think I remember, as I recall, that was kind of the big thing. And they wanted you to be like have some like, you know, like 3.0 kind of plus GPA. <laughs> but then they were they were always looking for like like extracurriculars, like what did you do? Did you like to speak? Did you work? Have you been in an office? Right. So uh, that's a good, you know, again, so so if you're one of those people, I did not get a 4 in college, so I'll just reveal that on the podcast <laughs> for everyone. Um, yeah. Don't worry. There's still a way in for you. It's okay. <laughs> so Absolutely. All right, so you did that for a little bit, and then you, it looks like you, t- you go from there to, I'm going to do my best here, Avande as a software developer? That's close. Is Avanade, that- yeah, so... About a year into Accenture, Avanade and Micro, or Microsoft and Accenture created a new company called Avanade. And it was a, hey, how do you have kind of technical Microsoft-ish consulting, kind of with some Accenture breed, but also kind of more technical, Microsoft-oriented, let's make a new company. And so, you know, Accenture was interesting, or Anderson at the time was interesting, because it was a very prescriptive career path. Two years as an analyst, which meant you were kind of in the weeds programmer. Then you became a consultant, a little higher level then you became a manager after like five. And then you they do some march, march towards, towards partner. But as I'm here, just some dumb 22, 23-year-old kid who's finally kind of getting into tech, I'm looking going like five years from now, I don't want to be out of this. Like five years from now, I'll be a manager who never touches tech again. That seems, I, I don't like that at all. So when this thing kind of spun up and it was like, hey, we need consultants, but there's a real technical track, technical career. I said, this seems better. So it was a really easy switch because you know, they were looking for people from the two respective companies to help form this new one. So there were 50 people when I joined, you know, my start group doubled the size of the company to 100 or so. And now it's a 30,000 person company. But it was cool to be there in the beginning, again, especially as just a dumb kid who didn't really appreciate startups in any sense. And it was a well-funded startup and all that sort of thing. But it was still a like, wow, let's build software from scratch with smart teams and and do that sort of things. So I spent five years there and it was fun to build platforms, you know, loan processing systems or front ends on, you know, back end databases for energy companies and some integration toolkits and things like that. So really awesome experience, became a good business traveler type travel, you know, 50 weeks a year, which in hindsight is insane. At the time it seemed cool. <laughs> so, you know, first five, six years of my career was just different types of clients, different type of you know opportunities, different tech. That sort of seasoning, I don't know. I think that set me up for the rest of what I did. Yeah, absolutely. So at the time, are you still doing like C plus plus and like building applications? Or are you just all over the tech stack at this point? Like, what are you like? What are the what's the technology you're using? Yeah, at that point, .NET was brand new. So especially being a Microsoft oriented startup, you know, we were the first one. You know, using .NET when it was still a, a beta that you installed via DVDs, and it bricked my laptop immediately, and I had to completely pave it over again. <laughs> destroyed it. But it was just, I mean, that was the time where it was like, gosh, we're getting DVDs at conferences, you know, professional developer conference for Microsoft. Everyone comes back and let's install stuff on our machines with no regard for productivity or what's going to happen. Like those were the, the glory days. So it was a lot of .NET stuff at that point. I picked up a, 
a technology that was brand new from Microsoft called BizTalk Server. It was their integration bus. It got thrown to me and a handful of people saying, what is this? Go figure it out. Kind of build some stuff so we can learn it. And that turned into something that you know I did for 10 years in terms of a technology. So just funny, somehow, sometimes when you just say yes a lot, the right kind of opportunities end up opening themselves up. That's, uh, that's something I've continued to do. Because you just never know where sometimes those yeses you know, that may even see random seem to turn into interesting opportunities later. No, totally. Absolutely. And I think it sounds like, you know, this from here, you went to Microsoft and I'm trying to figure out like, where did you sort of take the plunge into becoming uh, an MVP, right? At some point along the way, it seems like you really get into Microsoft. Was it when you got to Microsoft or was it before? Yeah. So micro, the MVP programs for non-Microsoft employees who, who kind of, you know, are good advocates for their tech. And so, while I was at Avanade, I don't even remember if MVP program existed at that point, but I was starting to do some stuff in this community of, of software integration and things. And I'd gotten to meet a couple of Microsoft folks and the person who was doing technology specialist work, which is really like a pre-sales engineer. You know, you go in, you do proof of concepts and training and fun stuff, stuff like that. This person left their role doing it for this integration technology space and reached out to me saying, hey, are you interested in applying to it? thought, yeah, you know, it might be fun to go work for the beast. Like, let's go work for the company making the tech I talk about a lot. And so got pulled into Microsoft. It was fun. It was great again now to not be responsible for delivery anymore, but to go pre-sales and all through Southern California, which was my territory, you know, just different types of customers, watch what they're doing, go help them answer technical questions, kind of good pragmatic stuff because these were like that was my first sales exposure really of going in with a rep and you know whiteboarding something answering questions watching my technology get bumped from a deal because they had to just close it at the end of the quarter like all kinds of good life lessons that kind of sucked at the time but it was it was cool experience yeah no it's it's definitely i think it's a great experience to just go give a lot of sales presentations um i my experience has been and when i did that my career was uh especially when you kind of go from delivery kind of to it's to me, it was like such a relief to be like, oh, thank God I don't have to deliver all this. I can just go in, give this, yeah. <laughs> go talk about it. Because I don't know, it just feels like it's so much harder on the delivery. But in your case, it looks like you kind of went the other way. So you were a technology specialist for a while, and then you go to Amgen, right? Which is mm-hmm. the like biotech. Is that correct? Yeah, it was the world's largest biotech company. And again, the difference, and I didn't, I don't know these things at the time, but you know, hey, chemistry is more often things in pills and things like that. Biologics are usually living organisms, things that are injected in in many cases. And so it's a different type of science. It costs like a billion dollars to do R&D and take a drug to market. I also kind of gained appreciation for the complexity of discovery and taking something through that may take 15 years from when you discover something to actually putting it in a patient in a final result. So like you're playing the long game there. I went from a Microsoft who you know, could come up with an idea. And even at that point, you ship software in a year, potentially, right? You get some sort of instant gratification of your work to something where there's no shortcuts at a, at a biologic company. Like I can't say, let's do this clinical trial faster and hope it works better. <laughs> there is real rigor to that. So it was, in, it was interesting to be go from, I mean, as you mentioned, it was weird to go maybe from implementation to almost vendor space back to kind of the client, but this was my first chance to be the enterprise person, like actually work and put it in. And that was the appeals. I was, I'd sold Amgen as part of my work at Microsoft. And after they bought the technology I talked about, they said, Hey, can you help interview somebody to help put this in and be on our interview loop and just talk to candidates? Sure. After the first few were duds, they, the person doing the hiring said, why don't we just hire you? (laughs) That's not a terrible idea either. And so for me, it was, I mean, Microsoft was fun, but I actually kind of missed 
not being there after I sold it. Like there was something about saying, well, let's go put it in and let's go buy it. Let's go try to use this technology I just talked about. And so let's get behind the wall, right? As a consultant, you were still a consultant. You didn't work there. You didn't have maybe even some of the process and pain as a real employee. So I, I like the idea of actually now being the customer. So I went from the kind of the consultant to the vendor, now to the customer and spent five, six years there doing development architecture, then enterprise architecture. And again, that was, you know, probably one of the kind of the middle of my career, but a lot of stuff has stemmed from that, actually spending that much time working for the actual customer and getting empathy for, you know, existing investments and budget processes and technology upgrades and skepticism towards vendors and all those things are actually really important. If you only spend time on the vendor side, then it's really easy to go, stupid enterprise, just upgrade. Why is that so hard? Like, do you realize that on the other side, I have a thousand systems all out of date. How do I pick which one to upgrade? It's not stupid enterprise. We have harder problems. And so like that was real experience I didn't have, which was so great to get because it, it's absolutely impacted everything I've done since then. Yeah, no, it sounds like you had a great experience there. I mean, I think your point about empathy, it really just can't may, be made strong enough. It's so often, I think on the vendor side, people are just like, you know, like, you know, they give the DevOps culture talk or they're like, mm-hmm. why don't you just migrate all this to the cloud? And it's like, you need to talk to, you know, customers <laughs> or it's like, I don't know. I got yeah. people, you know, especially like, like just pick something I was working on, like end of life Microsoft servers, like, you know, earlier this year. And it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, sure. Like everybody knows it's a problem, but it's like, I got 10,000 VMs or 20, you know, you got like 20, you got these huge numbers. It's like, it's not just going to happen. You know, it's like, there's a lot. No, that goes and into when, it. Um, absolutely. And in those cases, when you ask for a show of hands and I'll do in a room sometimes during a presentation, like who's had an upgrade bumped for a higher priority, like every hand goes up in the enterprise. Cause yeah, that old SharePoint system or Siebel system or SAP upgrade, that is not a sexy upgrade. Like, Oh, let's go spend 2 million on something you won't see any benefit for. Or, we spend $2 million on a new shiny thing. Guess what gets the funding every time? So it's hard to sometimes do these upgrade projects. It's hard to do retirement. It's hard to do, especially even in that era. This was the outsourcing era, right? This is like 2007 to 2012 when IT outsourcing had kind of really taken off in enterprise. So now you're even handing over responsibility to other parties, trying to figure out standard operating procedures, trying to build the mythical software factory that never existed. So that was all, again, good experience. And, and for me, just understanding the real challenges, not that you shouldn't push enterprises forward. So at the same time, that's not a cop out of, hey, it's really hard. Don't do hard things. No way. Like, I think everyone also wants to do good work. So it's nice to be able to say, hey, I know what you're feeling. I've dealt with that. There are some better ways. Let's talk about them versus the, you know, hey, enterprise idiot, here's a better way of doing stuff. Like get on the train. And too many vendors talk like that. And I don't like that. I think it's much more look, these are people who have hard problems, not maybe harder than even the startup person, but different problems. So make sure you understand them and show them a better way. Don't just kind of show them you're smarter than them. Yeah. I think you hit on a lot of good stuff there. And I think also I find that, you know, it looks like your time there, you were there for five years. It's that, mm-hmm. you know, many vendors and many people at vendors will come and go, but the people who are, you know, especially something like this, I think Mgen falls into this, but other categories where people are going to be there. I mean, these, a lot of people own these systems for a long time. So they've seen a lot of people come in and no out, doubt. right. Uh, proclaiming to have the next greatest thing. And, uh, along the way, right. They, they may have been burned a couple of times. So that's another part you have to remember is like, you know, these, the, the people running these systems, like, like I'll just take Amgen, like, you know, new drugs, stuff happens, right. I mean, stuff comes right. out and it's like, so, you know, make sure to give some, some time and respect there. So I was going to, so final question on that's Amgen right. is like, did you hire uh, Accenture? Yeah. Like, did your life come full circle? Did you, <laughs> did you bring them in? 
I mean, they probably had a deal there, but no, I think we were, I think we were, if we did any, it was, you know, outsourcing with the companies like IBM and others and, and things like that. But, you know, it was, it was funny when I joined, it was very much an insourcing, like, Hey, all the development was in house architecture in house, all that sort of thing. And then you had it outsourcing. And to me, that was the, you know, even now when you hear terms like it and the business, like I hate that designation. Like why is it less of the business in HR? or legal or yeah. marketing. Marketing's not the business either. So, <laughs> but it was very easy to do that when you kind of create these segments where here's a hand to I to IT for them to do work. It's just a contractor at that point. And so it was almost good to be in that part where it had hit such a kind of schism between the two, because now you see whether it's DevOps or other stuff, this effort to try to pull this back together and say, every company needs to be good at tech. I don't, I don't necessarily like the every company is a software company statement because I think that also minimizes what their actual core business is. But there is something to look, your, your business success is now directly coupled to your capability with technology. So there is no IT in the business or whatever. It's no IT is a fundamental part of how you deliver value. I think that's awesome. I saw the opposite, which again, also helps me try to get people to the good place. No, I like it. It's good. You even took a little shot there at Mark Andreessen. I like that too. So much for software using <laughs> the world. That's even better. Yeah. All right. So you leave Amgen and then it looks like you go on to CenturyLink here. And I don't when I'm kind of going over your information here, it's like, wow, it looks like CenturyLink was like this incredible, like, you know, in just a couple of years you go from being a, a senior product manager all the way to the VP of product, like in just like looks like three, three and a half years. So like, what did you do there? Like, what, and maybe more importantly, like, how do you get promoted like three times in two years? I think everyone wants to know that. Yeah, I think you just got to show up, uh, be the last man standing, whatever it is. Uh, so right out of Amgen, actually, I joined a startup that got acquired by CenturyLink. So I joined a company called Tier 3. And again, this was one of those sort of opportunistic things of, you know, I knew people from Twitter and I write, I'm an edit, uh, journalist for InfoQ. And so I'd written some stories about this cloud foundry technology. And person at, at VMware, people like Dave McCrory and James Waters and others like, hey, you should meet this guy, Jared Ray. He's doing like .NET extensions for Cloud Foundry. You might, you might like him. Had lunch with him. We talked about how hard it is to find kind of technical people who can also communicate at all. And so we finished the thing and he's like, how come I don't just hire you as a product manager? This is, feels repetitive. I feel like I've done this before. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so I did a kind of a quick interview while I was up there and it just didn't feel like the right time. It was such a funny experience that evening because he kept texting me like increases of $5,000 in the salary every 20 minutes to kind of get me to say yes. Oh, and wow. Only that's time nice. in my life that's happened. And I still turned it down because it just didn't feel like the right time to switch. But then work has changed. It became harder and harder to have a public persona while working in an enterprise they were more guarded so it's like yeah. eh, don't speak in public don't be an mvp don't like i don't i like that stuff that keeps me fresh so at that point i was like you hey, know it's time to maybe make a switch so i called jared back said hey is the job still there because yes at the original salary i offered son of a okay oh, so brutal. i still took, still took it yeah but it was uh and i'd never done product management before so i've pretty much never taken the same job twice so i this was product management didn't know what it was uh, it was a very new function at tier three. It was an IaaS, so an infrastructure as a service cloud targeting enterprises. Said, hey, let's we're building a product management discipline. Let's figure this stuff out. And so I learned all the, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, really around some of the best people that do this sort of thing. And so at least on the agile engineering side, so, you know, doing backlogs for that team, figuring out roadmaps, figuring out prioritization. I just became at least decent at product management. And then a couple of years in, CenturyLink acquired Tier 3. 
kind of help us scale. It's hard to be a small infrastructure as a service provider when the hyperscalers plow billions of dollars into scale. And so it was a great acquisition. It was fun to be part of an acquisition, first time really being part of that. I kind of took on a small team, became a manager, director type, and about a year after that, got bumped to VP, which I don't know. The people there, you know, my my peers would say, oh, you, you did a great job. To me, I just felt like most of my career is a, a lesson in imposter syndrome, but it was <laughs> fine. So, you know, up to a team of 50 folks, leading product for, you know, we, we scaled kind of DevOps and product-centric engineering from 40 people at, people at Tier 3 to about 500 at CenturyLink and, and that group. So it was amazing to see what the scaling DevOps look like. What does it look like when, you know, you just got a few products and a team all physically co-located to teams spread apart, 30 different products, trying to switch teams that shipped every two years to shipping monthly. Like it was an amazing crash course on what modern engineering and software should look like. So I was at least part of the brain trust of some sort on that, which I think kind of helped me. I had great support structure. So being a VP was terrifying, but also educational. I, I did okay at it. So I think for me, that's sort of how did I keep getting promoted? I don't have a great answer for that. I think it's something where, you know, I do learn quick. I think I seem to be able to to help others grow and, and motivate teams and kind of make decent choices. And so that some of those basics and you're, you're somebody people can work with and you show any sort of competence. I think for most people, that's usually a recipe for promotion. Maybe not as fast as I just, you know, had here. But usually it seems like competence plus visibility equals promotion at some point. <laughs> there you go. And maybe it is that easy. So that's good. Well, that sounds like a, a great experience. I'm trying to think, I feel like CenturyLink has gone through different evolutions. Like what I was trying to think, like, if someone said to me, yeah. like, what is it right now? Is it still basically a big internet service provider or is it like, I don't know, like, like how would you describe it today? Uh, yeah. I'm trying to, I mean, the way you almost jokingly describe it, it's a financial services firm with the network because it was also <laughs> a company that managed their dividends so well. Right. It's almost like, you know, you're almost thinking first of the stock price and secondarily of the assets. So, but it, I mean, it's a big network company. There was a great kind of merger a few years back, I think with level three or someone. So, I mean, they own a ton yes, of backbone. that's what it was, level three. That was, okay, that's what I yeah, was thinking. You know, of. they've okay. got a great backbone. They do great with managed services. Like it's a, it's a good company. It was also one of these kind of in-betweeners of like, what are we going to be when we really grow up? Because, you know, copper wires and, and landlines doesn't seem like a great business long-term. You know, managed services and cloud or having even your own cloud is increasingly tougher in this sort of space with the hyperscaler. So, you know, it seems like there's a lot of companies. I don't know if you know this, this. It just seems like the number of companies that are in that upper echelon is smaller than it was 10 years ago, where it seems like there were a, like a dozen winners, like everybody, like a lot of companies you could work for that all were kind of killing it in their space. It just seems like there's fewer of those now. So that might just be my own confirmation bias, but it does seem like you get a lot of these companies that have been successful for a while are figuring out what they can be next. Yeah, totally. I think that's, I mean, I think that's just an industry wide trend, right? Like the, there's like huge winners and then there's everyone else is sort of fighting for relevancy yep. in different ways. So uh, definitely. All right. So you're dead CenturyLink and then yep. sounds like you make your way to Pivotal, right? So is this now at CenturyLink, you've been doing Cloud Foundry, you already build a lot of apps. Like what's your entry into Pivotal here? Yeah, we were running I mean, I've been using Cloud Foundry since 2011. I got, you know, roped into the the launch event just because even from InfoQ stuff and Twitter stuff of just I was a, a guy who wrote about stuff. So I'd get roped into some of those things. But, you know, so there was a relationship with Pivotal a little bit at CenturyLink at the time. I stayed in touch with some folks. And when I realized that, and I don't know if you've had the experience of it going through an acquisition, because again, tier three to CenturyLink was great. You had about two years where we got completely left alone and just kind of given money to scale and all this great stuff. But then inevitably new leadership comes in, different 
goals, different values, makes sense. The people who acquired you aren't there anymore. So there's not that same affection. And so you could just tell the culture was going to change. The priority was going to change. And I didn't want to change. So I said, All right, it's probably time to go do something else. So like most normal people, you leave a Fortune 150 company in a VP spot to take an undefined role at a startup as an individual contributor who doesn't of do course. that. So, you know, I reached out to my friend James Waters, who first introduced me to Jared those years ago and said, hey, I might be on the market. What do you got going on at Pivotal? And, you know, we talked and it was like, here's a vague role in marketing. Sounds like a winner. Um, you know, good team, good stuff. Figure it out. Like, yeah, this seems like a, it's a great career move. So took that, joined Pivotal. I mean, at that point, Pivotal was in its growth curve. It was, hey, we're selling application software, Cloud Foundry, a bunch of other stuff. Doing this with Pivotal Labs and the sort of culture business transformation thing, kind of do marketing, which I had zero competence in marketing. If you sense a trend, I usually have no competence in the job I just took. So in this case, it was marketing. And like, I don't really know marketing besides most marketing seems awful. That was my only kind of back of my mind, like tech marketing is terrible. Sure, I should get into that. So Kind of went into that with product marketing uh, in a few months. It was, hey, do you want to run a team of product marketers for Cloud Foundry? Uh, I guess so. I, my my tenure as an individual contributor was was short on that one. And then by the end of the year, hey, do you want to kind of run all of product marketing? One, two, I don't know. Will I? Will I? Sure. That sounds that sounds fine. And so, you know, the team ended up growing to again thirty or so of folks from customer and product and partner marketing and all this kind of stuff, analyst relations, relations, and it was great. Like I really grew an appreciation for the complexity of, of, of event planning, of running campaigns, of doing brand, of doing analyst relations and PR. And again, things I had maybe kind of just in the universe of understanding, but no real appreciation for it. And so to actually think again back about messaging, and I could argue all these things build on each other, like being a consultant gave me a certain amount of empathy. Working at the vendor helped me understand certain aspects of delivery. Being in the enterprise helped me pick up stuff. Being on this vendor side as a sort of cloud provider help me understand things. So all of a sudden as a marketer, I mean, what's marketing really? I'm just trying to arguably drive sales by helping people understand stuff. Like, I think that's it. So in a role like this, where I still would, you know, I didn't put marketing in my title until my boss promoted me to VP, which was my deal. So it was just, you know, director of product, whatever, was, I don't even think of this as marketing. Like I'm just helping people understand what we do. And so you can call it marketing, that's fine. To me, you know, just trying to simplify stuff. And so that was, you know, for a lot of me there, it was just, how do I help people buy complex things by actually understanding what it is? You know, the, the value, the features, the whatever, the stories, the customer case studies, that was fun for me. So again, this was, all this stuff builds on each other. I'm not going from a, you know, a plumber to an astronaut in terms of jobs, but they're all somewhat related, even if different spheres of it. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I, I think you're one of, I'm going to put you in the category of one of millions of people who kind of transitioned from, uh, you know, kind of like the developer into like a product management role. And like, they're, everyone's like very hesitant to put like marketing. They're like, oh, wait a minute. I don't know. It's it's like this badge. It's like a river you have to cross. And then what you just said, it's like when I think yeah. people finally click, it's like, well, we have to explain to everybody how to use this and why it's good. Like that seems like an important role, but uh, it takes, <laughs> it takes people a long time, I think to embrace that for, I don't know. I think there's just like, maybe there's a fear of the unknown. I think people think of so much of it as advertising I, is what people think of rather than thinking of um, the more product product marketing function. I don't Go ahead. What was your comment? Well, I think you're spot on there. I think it just infuses everyone else's perspective and I shouldn't care what other people think, but it would be times where, 
I would be saying, hey, we're going to invite you to a meeting, but we'll also invite a product management person so people know what we're talking about. Like, son of, like, no, wait, what? I know what I'm talking about. Like, so it's just this interesting connotation. Like, well, you're just just marketing. So if we actually need some authoritative conversation, we'll go pull in an engineer or a product manager. And I think that was, I get it, but it was something where it's hard to be a technical marketer from my experience. And I ran technical marketing and things like that because you still have that title and people think I'm selling you something versus I'm just helping you. And a product manager, in my experience, especially now, what takes the product manager's call? Like I could probably call up any customer or prospect and say, I'm in product management at Google. Would you like to chat? Yes. If I said I'm in marketing at any company, wouldn't you get at least a pause? And that's not fair. And that's, that's you know, broad brush sort of stuff. That's not fair to all the great marketers and tech marketers out there. But we've built at least, at least to your point, probably an advertising type of connotation to marketing that just, I think, bumps it down just a notch from where it deserves to yeah, be. Yeah, no, totally. I, I always, in fact, when I talk to, especially when interviewing like anybody for product, I, I think product marketing and product management really can't be divorced. When someone's like, I don't do product marketing, I'm like, mm, mm. I don't know. I'm not sure you're doing product management then, <laughs> right? Because we're not thinking about how we're going to communicate this to somebody. True. Then we're probably doing something wrong. But uh, I'm with you on that, so we'll see. We'll, right. we'll, we'll, we'll have our little support group, if you will. Um, so I, I guess I should mention here, like full disclosure, I, I assume this is at some point yeah. you uh, got to know Kote in this role, uh, you know, our fellow co-host of uh, Software Defined Talk. Is that correct? I did. Yeah, I was a fan of his, and then it was fun to work with him. And then, you know, once he worked for me, that was when I really knew the power structure had changed. So we had, you know, I really reached my pinnacle. But no, we did the pot. We did a podcast together at Pivotal for a couple of years, and and he's my spirit animal. So I, I definitely want to grow up to be All like right, him. Well, at some day we're gonna have uh, the managing Cote podcast. We're gonna, you and I, we go for an hour. We'll we'll save that for like a Christmas <laughs> special when we've got some extra time. So yeah. That's like a six-hour supersize there. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so you're at Pivotal. You're, it sounds like, you know, obviously I know Pivotal then gets acquired yeah. by VMware. And there's you know, lots of changes, and then, mm -hmm. you know, the Tanzu is happening and all that stuff. So you make the leap, yep. but then, you know, I think you make uh, the next leap here. You, you uh, yeah. as you say in your blog here, it sounds like Google called, uh, and you took the call, and now you're the director of outbound product management at Google. So I think for the first thing is, is this just the glorified product marketing title with outbound product management? What, what, <laughs> what's going on here? What does this really mean? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably a little, there's some truth to that, but it's, you know, outbound product management, to my understanding, is a pretty unique role at this point. Like Thomas Curian, who's, you know, heads up Google Cloud, brought this over from Oracle, where they did this at Oracle. There's somewhat some parallels. I think Cisco has something that's similar to this. It's somewhat in the past. And but outbound product management, like what the heck is it really? Like that's a that's a totally fair question of, uh, you know, is this marketing? Is it more than that? But I think it's a bit of it's all it's explained product to the market. Absolutely. It's also pulling market feedback back into the product. And so when I look at what all this is, it's really a central accountability for for go to market of the overall product enablement, the uh, lovely thought leadership sort of stuff, customer engagement and enablement, right? Partner warm up, all that sort of stuff's part of this team. So it's really kind of a unification or a central accountability for kind of taking a product to market, getting that feedback back. So we actually build something better. And so that's where there's absolutely hints of product marketing, messaging, roadmap, competitive analysis, but also again, more of the enablement stuff, some of the product feedback running customer advisory boards and things like that. Plus just helping prioritize backlogs with other PMs saying, hey, I keep hearing this. This is something that matters. Here's a gap in the market. Here's some white space. So for me, the reason I took this was because it was part of product management. I wanted to get back to not just saying that problem sounds awful, I'm sorry, but I can fix it. And that's 
to me, that difference sometimes between what marketing can do and what product management is tasked to do, which is actually solve problems. So again, not totally fair. There's plenty of times marketers are influencing what gets built. To me, this was a chance to say, here's stuff I love doing, which is talking about products, simplifying complexity, enabling folks, right? Helping people make sense of it, but also helping actually drive what the product's supposed to be. Like that's just for me, the best of all worlds at this point. No, I get it. I, I You didn't quite say this, but I'm going to say it. It's like uh, anytime you see the outbound product management title, it means you get to do the fun part of product management. That's what I think it means. It means like, oh, it no means you're like, oh yeah. yeah, like I'm getting to spend most of my time doing the fun stuff. Uh, so I don't know, maybe, maybe other people have opinions, but every time I see that, I'm always like, oh, that'll be fun. We'll do the fun stuff, which I liked, I'll, like, and which is all the things you just said. So you, so I don't know, maybe we should talk yeah. a little bit because I think people always want to work at Google and, mm-hmm. you know, Google's, I mean, we obviously don't have to explain how successful Google is. Everyone knows it. So what was it like, you know, whatever you want to reveal, was it a, a strenuous mm-hmm. interview process? Was it a fun interview process? Like, you know, what's the secret? Everyone probably here wants to know what's the secret to getting inside Google. Yeah, I did my training a couple of weeks ago on, on how do you hire here? Cause you have to go through a whole thing and I don't know, all the training here has been, has been I wouldn't say surprisingly good. I, who expects bad training? But I don't know, it's been very sincere training, if there's the only word I could think of. Like even the you know sort of privacy training, which I had to take a ton of, even in my role of how we treat data privacy and how we treat the customer. And like, it was all very genuine stuff, which was great. So even the hiring training, like there's a remarkably rigorous process to get through the gauntlet that is Google. And it's not set up to purposely be complicated. I don't think we're doing a ton of, you know, get on a whiteboard and, and write some code stuff. Obviously there's going to be pockets where that's necessary, but there are specific things we look for because look, it's it's hard to find the right people, especially for what we look for at Google around being able to handle ambiguity, being able to do all these things, build teams, lead stuff. And so there's definitely a set of things you go through. The weirdest thing to get used to if you interview at Google is the person you're talking to is virtually typing everything you say. So when I look at the notes now, because I'm building a team, so I'm interviewing like crazy. Frankly, the, the biggest surprise for me joining Google and like announcing it publicly is how many people asked oh, for jobs. I didn't expect I that. Bet, I bet. But uh, it was overwhelming. It was it was cool, but but shocking. But you know when I when I interviewed and, and someone's head isn't looking at you the whole time and they're typing and everyone starts the interview the same way. I'm typing this like I'm taking notes. I'm not doing other mm-hmm. work, and it's very kind. Right. Because otherwise you think, boy, they're in a pretty intense IM conversation here while we're, we're interviewing because they haven't looked at me in, in five minutes. But no, they're taking notes. And so there's a lot of rigorous score across a few dimensions. And so all that feedback comes in. It's meant to be purposely trying to weed out some bias. Like you can't just look at somebody going, I like the way they look. Let's hire them. It doesn't work that way. It's impossible. So there's definitely the process that goes through to weed out bias, to weed out things of somebody just maybe getting a weird vibe. But if you can't quantify it, if you can't score it the right way, like, you know, there's only so many, so much impact you could have with that kind of feedback. So I think it's good. It just means it's rigorous. So, you know, five plus plus interviews to go through the loop, you know, then back and forth on, on actually getting to an offer. So it's definitely an extensive process, but it's done on purpose to make sure we get some great folks and that you, even as the interviewee kind of have a sense of, what you're getting into because it's you know too easy of an interview can be scary i guess because you might wonder they're just desperately getting you in there 
there's a certain pride once you get accepted in. But even going through the process, I'd recommend for people because it's a good rigorous interview process that preps you for all kinds of well, things. That's cool. It sounds like it was a good experience for you. So good. And that's why I think you explained why like everyone I know from Google like can type extremely fast. So that's that's I think that explains Man. what it is. Um, well at Google, so, I mean, this is something I'm doing a lot of now and, yeah. um, I think we let's spend some time diving in here. So at modernization, it's the mm-hmm. hot newness, everyone's yeah. doing it. Everyone's talking about it. it is. Everyone defines it a little bit differently. So that as a, is that being said, <laughs> when I say at modernization to you, what do you mean by it? Yeah. I mean, usually improving the software to add new value and that new value might be retiring some technical debt. You know, maybe I'm on an old version of something. I need to upgrade it. It could be, you know, look, all of a sudden we're seeing this now this last few months, right, as we're all flooding online services that plenty of systems weren't designed for mobile access or many short connect connections or sort of bursty load. They were used by maybe call center agents. And so you had a fixed number of people using it during fixed hours. And all of a sudden that same billing system, that same activation system is exposed to a million people through an app. Holy cow. So all of a sudden you might now be thinking about, okay, modernization means I'm adding maybe new web endpoints or API endpoints. Maybe I'm putting a queue in between. Maybe I'm switching to a eventually consistent database so I can control bursts and flow. So it's usually looking at, to me, it's how do I take existing assets, which probably are super important. They make my company all my money. So don't you know give me a side eye about legacy apps. You know Those apps probably matter more than anything you're building right now. And so how do I take that thing and maybe breathe new life in it that gives it another 10 years by maybe you know doing the whole, maybe I replatform it. Maybe I refactor it and add some new functionality. Maybe I just rehost it because I'm shutting down the data center and I run it on a cloud somewhere. Or maybe I even rebuild it, you know, or possibly even replace it and use the SaaS alternative. So in some way, I'm trying to be a tactical and strategic at the same time about where, how do I get new value out of my existing assets? maybe by paying down debt or maybe by adding new functionality. Yeah, no, you hit on a lot of stuff in there. And I think, you know, sometimes, um, at least in my day to day, sometimes we talk about migration, sometimes I talk about modernization and sometimes mm-hmm. it's just really just what makes the comfortable, what makes the client the most comfortable, yeah. right? Like what do they, what do they think we're doing? And let's just call it that, right? Let's not get too hung up on it. Cause I think sometimes people here at modernization and they're just like, Oh, you're going to make me use all the containers and like learn everything. And Kubernetes <laughs> is like, well, we could maybe, right. We could, or we could yeah. do something simpler. Um, but I mean, in some of the reading I was doing on some of the stuff, like, so tell me if this is right. Like, are you a little skeptical of like lift and shift approaches or like, how, how do you kind of navigate this? Like all the things you, uh, you kind of laid out, it's like, you can kind of mm-hmm. do everything from like, mm-hmm. let's just do simple lift and shift to let's replatform it to let's rebuild the, the, the whole thing. So like when you're like talking to customers, how do you navigate that, those choices with them? Yeah, it's a great question. On one hand, I, I, I see, you know, analysts, tech analysts sometimes point this out, you know, condescend, not even condescending. Like, I'm good that sometimes we're starting with the end in mind, which isn't a good place. Like, it's Kubernetes, what's the question? Or it's public cloud, what's right. the question? Like, stop doing that. That's not good architecture. That's not even good practice. What are you trying to accomplish? And so even with cloud migrations, any of these sort of things, I don't like just doing it to do it or because somebody thinks you should. And so to me, for example, app modernization is a lifestyle. It's not a project. Like, that's literally something you'll probably do the rest of your career in technologies. You're always modernizing. This isn't a fixed term thing that needs a budget. It's literally either team or skills or whatever, because you're always modernizing. So as you think of that lift and shift, again, it's a tactic. To me, sometimes it looks like all I'm doing is buying a new credit card with a lower APR, like I'm just transferring my debt around. So I'm not paying anything down. Maybe I'm just paying a, a lower rate on my debt versus 
hey, if that thing kind of stinks in a VM, it's probably going to kind of stink in a container. Do I want to do anything to maybe pull out local state and put it into an object store, or into a Redis cache? Do I want to, again, make sure I've got some better startup routine so it doesn't take 20 minutes to auto scale the app or things like that. But all of this to me comes down to value because that's, that's you know, we started talking about in the enterprise. Let's say I've got on average in many enterprises, two to 10,000 apps. If I'm even doing 50 a week, it's going to take forever. So I'm not going to do all of them. I don't have all unlimited time, money, people. So I'm going to be surgical about where am I going to get the most value, the most return on investment, maybe where I have the highest debt that's literally holding back a business area. And I'm going to go attack that versus, hey, we have this cool new platform. It's it's Azure, it's GCP, it's it's, it's whatever. Let me just go start shoveling stuff to it as quick as I can. Now, again, there could be value if your goal is to get off old hardware, get out of some, some you know abusive support contract from a vendor. So you might lift and shift, and that could totally work. In other cases, you're just, again, to me, delaying the inevitable for some of those systems that actually need more work, or you should just shut them off. And so to me, it's part of your tactics, just shouldn't always be your primary. Yeah, it probably gets too much emphasis, but I like your uh, credit card metaphor. I, I've mellowed a little bit on lift and shift because I think it's it's more, um, to, we'll just mm-hmm. kind of keep going with the debt. Like sometimes a smart thing in life is to take all your high interest credit cards and put them on a low interest credit card and just like get yourself sure. to a starting point. And then from that, you'll hopefully start paying off the debt mm-hmm. and you know doing other things. And I think app uh, modernization can be like that too. Sometimes just getting everything in the cloud, getting the best deal and getting us to a point. Because I we talk a lot about, uh, I spent a lot of time using, I, I don't like the word, but I don't have a better one, like journey, right? We we'll always say like, hey, this is the starting point. Let's right. get you, get everything yeah. there, get it all baseline, get everything under control. And then from there, we can replatform. We can even maybe retire some stuff we moved that we don't, we, now we know for sure it doesn't, mm-hmm. um, uh, work right. and then of course maybe we can start you know building some new hotness because we have a reason to right because we just what you said we have these new client applications and they're spiking and they need some of this new cloud native functionality so um so it is true although i will say the best uh the the i will give a, a real shortcut here like if you have a really low low old legacy application and like no one's really sure what to do with it you know what you should do just turn it off and see if anyone calls that's the first thing you do just well that's like that's the lowest hanging yeah. fruit of all time and then you'll learn that's like up. Oh, no one calls. We know what we're gonna do. We're done. Project complete. So uh, now my uh, my old boss Jim Newkirk, who taught me more about agile than uh, than anybody, said, "Look, every June or every January first, shut off every app in the environment. Whoever asks for it to turn back on owns it." <laughs> yes, yes, that is the way this should work. Then you'll find out what better. people actually care about. So, uh, but yeah, no, you're right. I've mellowed on lift and shift as well. Frankly, the biggest transformation for myself that I've noticed that people have talked about is instead of you know, my or modernize and migrate, like fix the app, improve it, then move it to some new platform. We're seeing much more migrate than modernize, kind of get it to the new place. Sometimes you do actually really inherit benefits from running in the new thing, even if you didn't really touch it. We can talk about that with migrate for Anthos in a minute, but there is, there's real value there. And I, I think I didn't appreciate, appreciate it as much before that sometimes literally just getting it somewhere else gives you some inherited value. And then you can hopefully backtrack and then start making some real improvements to it. But to sort of modernize and then migrate, I think it takes too long. Yeah. So at this point, you probably can't go fix all your stuff and then decide to move. You're not going to get value for months or years if you That's do that. That's true. All right. Well, you kind of like set us up here. So let's, uh, as we close out here, let's get it because you're working with Anthos. Everyone's talking about Anthos. I'm trying to use Anthos on my current job. And you talked about Anthos, uh, migrate <laughs> for Anthos. So why don't you give us a little quick, yeah. what is what is Anthos in your world? <laughs> And then uh, yeah. how, do, how do we get migrated to Anthos? Because uh, a bunch of us are out here trying to do it. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Anthos is what anyone wants it to be. Apparently, it's a floor wax, it's a carpet cleaner, it's a it's an application platform. But uh, I mean, in real life, it is a managed platform, extends Google Cloud services, and our engineering practice is into your environment. So you can hopefully modernize your apps faster, be more consistent across clouds. So it's Kubernetes and Knative and Istio and other stuff. But the point is, it's an extension of Google Cloud Platform and the way we do SRE, the way we do kind of release management and pipeline. So you're really extending Google Cloud to Amazon, to on-premises, to other clouds, to Edge, which is a pretty powerful concept when you think of how do I kind of have lightweight consistency across things like compute storage networking, but also service management and provisioning of services and service health, things that Google's really well known for. It's a cool way to extend that. And so Migrate for Anthos actually takes virtual machine workloads. And it's some technology we had uh, acquired for a couple of years back that actually makes it really easy to take these workloads, workloads on VMs and containerize them, whether it's you know, Windows containers, Linux containers. And so you're actually kind of sucking out the app components, sometimes you know, ancillary data pieces and configuration. And then you're getting it into a Docker file, but also you're getting, you know these are stateful sets definitions because this stuff can run in Kubernetes fine and a Kubernetes YAML file and other stuff. So I can literally start to build a migration factory here where I'm pointing it at source apps, generating all the artifacts I need, loading those into a GKE environment, whether that's on-premises as part of Anthos or in GCP or ever, anywhere else. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm really starting to do that migrate then modernize. And when I drop these things into an Anthos or into plenty of cloud platforms, you start to inherit stuff around observability, around scale, around security kind of perimeter and, and default patching and things like that. So these sort of tools, whether it's Anthos itself or Migrate, the idea is really how do you start to standardize some of these operational practices while getting these apps into a modern stack that has kind of tooling that you're familiar with and all of these sorts of things. Pretty powerful way. And if you like, you know, again, with Anthos, it's Kubernetes, it's Knative stuff for serverless containers. It seems like it represents what a lot of people are trying to pull together. But this gives you a kind of a package version from Google. No, it's very cool. I have to say we're doing a little project where we've got, uh, you know, Anthos and we stood up some uh, GKE in AWS. And so we're connecting it mm -hmm. all together and some of it's running yeah. in uh, GCP. So you feel like, you feel like a real, like you've really comp. When you've done that, you're like, we've done it. We've done it across <laughs> multiple clouds. No, we, we, we feel like. Yeah, I think we send you a hat. That's right. You know? Yeah, I mean, you get a t-shirt. But I do think, you know, uh, for a long time, like, I guess, you know, I used to talk hybrid cloud. I guess we just say multi-cloud now, but whatever, mm -hmm. whatever we're saying. It's like uh, for a long time, I was like, ah, it <laughs> doesn't really exist. But no, um, Anthos, and there's a few yeah. other things out there, obviously. We won't go mm -hmm. into them today. You know, some, yeah. of your, some of your competitors, they've got some solution. But it's like, no, actually, you can do it today. Sure. You, can, you can do it. It's fine. You just got to get used to using the, you know, get it all set up in the consoles and it all works. So it's, uh, uh, and people have been asking, I think, customers in different ways have been asking that for years. So it feels like, okay, the industry as yeah. a whole, as a whole industry, I feel like we're finally delivering on uh, maybe some promises we've been making for a long time. So it's good. Yeah, I absolutely despise the term single pane of glass, but that's <laughs> kind of what you start to get with some of these, like, how do I actually manage these centrally? While also, I mean, I don't know about you, for me, when you talk about multi-cloud, most people go to, at least the, the critics, like it's lowest common denominator. It's the old kind of cloud management platforms where you're just generically provisioning VMs, you're locked out from other innovation of those clouds. I think what's interesting in this world is, you know, things like Anthos are cloud first. They started in the cloud. GKE, I think, is considered still the world-class managed Kubernetes, so go run that on AWS or on-prem or whatever. So can I be multi-cloud but still tap into the best stuff? Like that seems hard. That's what we're trying to do here, which is pretty cool, whether it's, you know, and learning stuff and Kubernetes stuff and Knative stuff and others like this is bleeding edge stuff. You can just happen to run it anywhere and keep it consistent. I think that is a pretty cool promise. It maybe wasn't possible 
until only recently. No, I totally agree. Well, it's good. I mean, as we always say with Google, great tech, good stuff. So everyone should check it out. So, <laughs> all right, well, let's go a couple quick hitters and we'll close it out. So, you know, yeah. you're at Google, you know, everyone's heard about the food. Mm-hmm. Everyone's heard about all kinds of stuff. Uh, what's What's been the best yeah. thing for you so far at Google? I mean, I've been remote the whole time. I may not meet my boss for another six months, which is so bonkers. you did not get the food. So, uh, Strike one on the food, I oh guess. Oh gosh, no, they actually. I think we did have to put something in our FAQ that you can't you can't expense your home food like that. Somebody must have asked, but uh, yes, you don't get free food at home oh, either in this sad. world. But you know, honestly, the best thing people everyone says people and their jobs, and that makes tons of sense. Although, if we all admit to ourselves, like it's a crapshoot when we join a new company that the people will be awesome, like you're hoping, but. You're always joining, hoping the people are great. And fortunately here, people are great. But honestly, the thing that stood out to me most so far is just, I love having a cloud. Like I don't have to do anything to spin up Kubernetes clusters for demos. I don't have to do anything to get all kinds of fun stuff. But more broadly than that, it's that I've never worked at a place that has this kind of planet-wide impact. And it's just kind of cool to be this company. Like my six-year-old daughter walks around the house screaming, hey, Google, at our Google Home devices. Like this is the only company she would know that I work for. And it's like, it's just my life. I didn't even think about it, right? Whether it's search or maps or YouTube or ads or whatever. Like we're thankfully in all sorts of different ways, often invisible, almost all the time free for end customers. You know, we don't even think about these services or paying for them, YouTube, whatever. And so I just think it's cool to be at a company that has this kind of impact that good and bad comes with that. But that's kind of a mission to me that feels great that it's kind of cool to contribute that's to. That's fantastic. Well, that's a good answer. Sounds like you're really enjoying it. So now if someone wants to get started with a GCP, what's the best way? What should they do? Yeah, you can go to cloud.google.com. We have a really nice forever free tier, not one of these that expires in 10 days. And then, you know, we steal your family and your house and your kids because you can't pay your bill. So there's a good forever free tier for services. You can use things like Cloud Run for serverless containers, object storage. And if you're a dev, I've been messing around more with the cloud code stuff, which you can install into Visual Studio Code or IntelliJ and just kind of mess with cloud stuff, use SDKs, push your apps. So kind of a cool local dev experience emulators on your own desktop for things like databases and PubSub and all that kind of fun stuff. So cool ways to start in the cloud free, but also Steven start on your desktop and, and never even have a risk of paying for yeah, anything. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. No, everyone, everyone needs to have a GCP account, you know, lots of fun stuff and to that. And then I'm, um, you are a prolific writer. So where can people find you on the <laughs> web? You've got sites all over. Where should we go to find you? Yeah, you can go to Sorotor.com is where I keep my blog. I, I do training for plural sites. I've done 21, 22 classes there that people watch. And I write for InfoQ. You can find me on Twitter at, at rsorotor and uh, harass me there. But yeah, you know, I, I don't do any of that stuff because I, I guess I have to. I think it's fun. I, I learn more, more by, list, by listening to other people and engaging. And frankly, training is a way I think I've learned the most because you can't teach something if you don't learn it first. And so I'll often sign up for classes to teach when I'm a competent competent to do it as it forces me to really dig deep into a topic and get smarter. So that's uh, you can find me all over the place. And I'm always up for suggestions for things I should write about or, or teach classes on. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, Richard, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been a great interview. Thanks much. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, listen, if this is the first time you've ever heard software defined talk, well, welcome, but you can subscribe by going to our website, www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you can uh, join our Slack. You can talk to Kote, Richard's old uh, workmate. Uh, you can follow us on social media. And uh, if you want, I'll send you a sticker, an S- a Software Defined Talk sticker. So this is what you have to do. Just send me your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.